Hey, what's up, guys? Hope you've had a great week and welcome to another episode of Mastering You. And boy, do we have an awesome episode for you today. Um, I really love getting people on the show that can tell transformational stories. That's what Mastering You is all about. It's about inspiring people and motivating people to become the best version of themselves. And I think we've done a good job here. (laughs) Um, Tiffany shares an amazing survivor story of an event that happened 20 years ago. Um, And I'm not going to spoil it. I think you should listen to it. Uh, it. It is an incredible story. But more importantly, the lessons learned off the back of this are super valuable. And, you know, we go quite deep into specific lessons and strategies that we can apply and you can apply to your own life. So I really hope you enjoy it. And um, I'm sure it maybe will touch you as much as it did me. Uh, I want to say thanks again to Tiffany for taking the time. Um, It took us a couple of weeks to get this scheduled in with the time difference of Australia, but we finally got there and um, yeah, it was just fantastic. Um, Head on over to the show notes after you've listened and you can grab a copy of her amazing book that goes into even more detail. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Okay, Tiffany, uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Mastering You. Uh, we've been trying to get this, uh, this started for a few weeks now. I know you had your, your own things going on, and obviously, we're obviously going to find out a lot more about that. But in Melbourne at the moment, you're just in lockdown. Things are a bit crazy, but I'm really pleased to finally have you on Mastering You, um, sharing potentially one of the most um, transformational stories that we've heard so far since we've been doing these interviews so the cool thing for me uh, about doing these particularly I like to kind of do a little bit of research but I really like to be surprised myself so I'm as surprised as the listener when they listen to the podcast um, and I know some snippets of, of, of what you're going to share but I'm really excited to, to listen more if you don't mind, Tiffany, if you want to start, just give you a quick intro about yourself and, and about, you know, who you are, what you do. That'd be amazing. Thanks, Matt. I'm so excited to be here. We have had a few challenges connecting, but I'm glad that we've been able to make it happen for today. So as you can hear, I'm from Australia. I'm from beautiful, sunny Melbourne. It was today. It's not always sunny, but <laughs> it was beautiful today. And I'm an author, a podcast host of the podcast, When We Are Brave and I'm a keynote speaker. I have a variety of books. Uh, My best-selling memoir, Brave Enough Now, is available on all uh, platforms where you buy books. And it's my story of transformation and survival, which I'm going to talk to you about today. I'm really excited to be sharing that. But my little business is all about empowering people to be brilliantly brave as their authentic self so that they can live their best and bravest life. Because at the end of the day, we have to be brave to be authentic. And to be authentic leads us to our purpose in life, to a place where we are living a happy life. And let's face it, living a happy life, we're put on this earth for a reason and for a purpose. And if we can be brave enough to take those steps forward Mm. to embrace that, then that's amazing and a wonderful gift to the world. That's amazing. I love that. I love that. You asked me just in when we were having a quick chit chat before we started what you know what you've been up to, 
um, in lockdown. And, and, how, and one of the things was I started writing some of my own book, um, something oh, I've never done nice. before. And, um, and one of the chapters is um, the audacity to want what you want. And just when you said what, I'll say that again, the audacity to want what you want. So it's just a different spin on the word courage, basically, because I yeah. think to, to want what you actually want, it takes a heap of courage. And yeah. like, as in your, the word that you use is, is being brave. And I 100% agree with that. I think that was probably one of the things that when I was look, when we sort of first connected, sort of struck me to, to you, because it was that concept. Um, I'm really looking forward to finding out more about, you know, the backstory behind that. But I feel that that is something that maybe many people aren't even aware of, you know, are you wanting what you want or are you being distracted by the noise or the environment or what's going on around us? And you're actually yeah. not being, like you say, authentic to yourself about, well, what do I actually want? What is it? Yeah. Is that, and are we on the same kind of wavelength there? Totally, 100%. And it takes, like you say, it takes <clears throat> incredible courage to face that. And often we feel that we have to do certain things in a certain way because of our circumstances, but that's not always the case. We always, always, always have a choice. And it's just getting that bravery and belief in your inner being and your inner self to yeah. take those steps forward in your life. Yeah, I love that. So, yeah. so let's, let's, if we don't mind, let's, let's backtrack. And, you know, how did this, how did this all come about, Tiffany? So I start my story when I was about 17. Interestingly, I have been writing my sequel. And so today I'm going to start it back even further. When I was little, I, I was a very happy-go-lucky little girl. And I stayed a happy-go-lucky person most of my life. I remembered a time when I was sitting at lunch when I was in kindergarten. So that's the first year of primary school in yeah. Australia. And we had these really uh, cold metal benches or they were hot in summer and freezing in winter and i used to sit on those benches every single day and eat on my own my jam sandwich and swing my legs right and i no one ever came to play with me no one ever spoke to me i was quite shy at school when i was really really little and i think that sense that i had when i was 17 I had this sense of not belonging and I actually think that it really started all that way back then. So that's, mm. that's a sort of unraveling that happens when you go on these journeys of discovery and transformation. And I think we all go through that in our life when we reflect back. And, into, and how old were you? Sorry. Uh, that, that... Oh, I would have been really like about five. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Are you um, an only child? I, yeah. I was at that point, but then my little brother came along um, a couple of years later. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so as, as throughout high school, and I, I was bullied horrendously um, as I got older in primary school, terrible, terrible bullying. And then I went to high school and I became more of who I am now. But I still had that niggling feeling that I didn't belong. And when I was finishing high school and I had all these options of what I was going to do with my life, I was craving that, finding that piece of me that I felt was missing. And it was that sense of belonging, that sense within myself. And it wasn't that I didn't love my family or love my farm. I grew up in the country. It wasn't that I didn't love the town that I grew up in. It was just that I felt like there was a missing piece of me. And I think a lot of young people 
going through those early stages of adulthood mm. are really searching. Mm. And I was definitely in that category. So I chose a safe and steady path of a course at university interstate because I thought that if I moved away from home, maybe I would find that there. Yeah. My second year at uni, I was working. I was standing at the coffee machine. I don't drink coffee. I've never drunk coffee in my life. <laughs> I was making coffee and doing a terrible job of it. And this guy appeared and he took my breath away and I had these intense feelings I didn't even know existed. And I thought maybe this is my missing puzzle piece. Maybe this is what I've been looking for. And within a week, we'd moved in together and we had this incredible whirlwind romance. But within three months, that beautiful, euphoric nature of the relationship turned into a toxic, heated mess. And being so young, I had no idea how to get out of it. Mm. Two years went by and my aunt died and I was finally allowed to go home. And so I drove back home and I'd hardly seen my family. I'd hardly seen my friends. If I had any friends, um, there was a lot of control involved in that relationship amongst other things that go with a toxic relationship. I just didn't know how to get off that hamster wheel. Yeah. And when I got home to my childhood bedroom and I looked at myself in the mirror and I saw this young girl who didn't look anything like what I had looked like when I'd left. And the last time I'd been in that room, and I had bones sticking out of me. I'd completely turned to anorexic. I'd stopped wow. eating because I thought that that would fix the relationship. That would fix me. If I could fix me, I'd get back to where we were when yeah, I first yeah. met him. And I'd find that missing piece. But what had actually happened was that I'd lost every single piece of me in trying to be something that I wasn't. And I realized I needed to get out. So I drove back to our happy home and I found him in bed with two of my friends. How, old, you, how that, old were you at this point again? I was uh, nearly 20. Right, okay. Now. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I, in fact, I think I might have been 20 because it wasn't, it wasn't very long before I actually went overseas, which um, I was 21 when I went overseas. So I, um, I was finally given permission by myself to leave, mm. even though I knew that that's what I was planning on doing, but it mm. just there was a lot of manipulation and like I said, control. And I did leave and I went to a tropical Island and I was full of shame and self doubt and high anxiety and low self-esteem. And like I said, all those pieces had gone away from me. I'd lost every single piece of me. And I was going home from work uh, one night in a dark part of the island and two men started following me and I was nearly raped and I managed to get away, but I was terrified. And the phone calls had started from the ex-boyfriend. He had called and said he was going overseas. And I instantly said, do you want to book a ticket for two? Because I thought it was better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. I felt so incredibly lost and confused When I got on the plane with him, I couldn't speak to him. I was thinking, what the hell are you doing? But terrified about what my life could have been in Mm. terms of I didn't feel like I'd never shared the toxicity with my parents or my friends or anyone. No one knew about what had been really going on. And I felt this, this shame. It eats you up. It consumes all of your being and I kind of wanted to prove myself in a way that I could make it work but really you know 
you often can't make it work. We got overseas and I thought, what the hell am I doing? What the hell am I doing? And he had convinced me to open up a joint bank account. And I thought that the promises and the love and the marriage would eventually happen and that things would go back to normal. But that same old wheel just started to turn more and Mm. more and more. And I was going through my backpack one day and a letter fell onto my bag and it was addressed to him. It had Australian stamps on it. It was covered in all these little love heart stickers. (laughs) stunk of cheap perfume and I was like oh my god what is in that letter I've got to know what's in that letter and so I opened it like totally naughty totally illegal I'm you know like I said before the girl next door babysit the kids I would never open someone else's mail but I was desperate to know yeah and you had good reason to as well right yeah I really did and my instincts were right because what was in that letter was a letter from his married lover back in Australia who he had wow. so generously paid for her flights to go to the UK to be with him. And then when I went to our bank account, my mom was Oh, wow. Wow. I decided that enough was enough and I was finally going out on my own and I left once and for all and for good. Mm. In the process of all of this happening, I'd managed to get a job um, up in the highlands of Scotland. And when I got there, it was a disaster. The rat droppings were covering the windowsills. The kitchen was disgusting. And I thought I cannot stay here one second. So I made a phone call back home. And this is back in the days when you had call collect because we didn't have mobile phones. It's 1999 by now. (laughs) My mum answered the phone and she still didn't know about this disastrous relationship. I still couldn't bring myself to tell my family, I felt like I really had let them down. Mm. And my beautiful mother said to me, well, darling, you can't have gone overseas and had a terrible time. You need to go out there and live, live. (laughs) She's very flamboyant, my mother. And so she said, go and book a Kentucky tour. Now, for those of you out there who don't know what a Kentucky tour is, it's a bus tour for young people aged between 18 to 35. And it's kind of like speed dating around Europe. Right. Within a week, I'd got onto the Kentucky bus, but even getting onto the Kentucky bus, there were constantly stop signs from the universe telling me to not go any further. And I had this gnawing feeling of foreboding, of this terrible sense of something bad is going to happen. Mm. But I just didn't listen to it. I didn't listen Mm. to my intuition. I just kept pushing it away, thinking, no, just keep going forward. Make it happen because... I didn't trust who I was. I didn't trust the world. I was scared. I was feeling incredibly vulnerable. And I really just wanted to find me again. Mm. And I was lost, so lost. We got on the bus. I humiliated myself in the first five minutes. People were cheering and carrying on. And I thought, oh, dear Lord, like, again, what am I doing And slowly those onion layers of myself started to peel away. And I finally started to open up. I'd made so many mistakes. I was drinking too much. I was carrying on like a ridiculous person purely because I had all of this anxiety and this shame and this lack of Mm. self-confidence. And we were driving through Tuscany, which sounds incredibly glamorous and beautiful. And it was all of those things. I wanted to share that experience with someone so much and I started to feel quite homesick. I looked up over the seats of a bus, like a coach, you know, they're quite high, the seats. Mm. 
and everyone was asleep and I was so sad and so alone and this other girl looked up and I'd never spoken to her before and so I sort of said to her come up here come up here and she sat down next to me and the two of us connected in this incredible kindred spirit way kind of like which I always refer it to like Anne of Green Gables and Diana Barry I don't know if you've ever seen it but it was just this beautiful moment of complete acceptance of each other. Our hearts poured out to each other. We looked at these fields and fields of sunflowers and we're in awe of where we were, but also with each other. And she actually has stayed my best friend to this Wow, day. amazing. Yeah. And that was really the beginning of my unravelling. When we got to Switzerland we went up to Jungfrau and that is the highest train station in the world. And it's on a glacier. Now I'd never seen snow. I'm an Aussie girl from out in the bush. (laughs) We didn't have snow. And so when I saw these mountains and I saw this old snow, it wasn't like it was fresh powder. It was the middle of summer. It was July. Mm. And I just thought if these mountains can stand the test of time, if these mountains can withstand dinosaurs and blizzards, goodness knows what else, yeah. then maybe, just maybe, I can do this thing called life too. Maybe it's okay to have made the mistakes. Maybe it's okay to have the gifts and talents that I have and not feel bad about them or have, like I have to hide them. Maybe it's okay to still make more mistakes. Maybe it's okay to be me. And it was the first time I ever really felt self-love and self-acceptance. Wow. I was liberated. It was wonderful. I didn't drink anything that night. I had a wonderful time. I felt like I'd made these incredible connections. And the next day we were going canyoning and I was ready to take life in my hands and go for it. I was pumped. I had a really, really unsettling feeling in my tummy again, and it had turned into overdrive. We're getting ready for our canyoning trip. Now, for those listeners out there who don't know what canyoning is, it's when there's water going through the side of a canyon and boulders, like a creek in the side of a mountain is what we would call it, or a stream. And it's basically at the very, very top of the mountain, there's the snow starts to melt and sort of halfway down the mountain, there's this canyon and then you sort of make your way down through there with your body so there's no boats or anything like that it's harnesses you might jump off a boulder and into a water hole and then you might slide down or you know use um ropes or something along those lines so yeah you're making your own way down because a lot of people get it confused with canoeing i promise Mm. you it's not canoeing (laughs) so it sounds fun though (laughs) yeah like super fun when there's not a flash flood. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, guess so, we get to that. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I was we were all full of adrenaline. I was so excited to be doing this adventure sport. Like it was, it was a wild thing to do and it was yeah. fun and exciting. Yeah. And having this new sense of self, it made it even more exciting. Mm. Knowing how far I'd come was so, yeah, liberating is the best word to say. Mm. We were standing there getting ready and we're getting our helmets and the life vests. We had full wetsuits on, um, full length and little water shoes. And I was standing, listening to the guides talking to us and getting us ready and telling us, you know, what we needed to do, like a briefing. Yeah. There was a girl standing next to me and I didn't know this girl. She was married and she was from another Kentucky tour. And I thought to myself, 
as I was looking at her, that's really interesting. Why would you go on a Kentucky tour if you're married? Because it was targeted specifically at singles. But I thought, well, I hope you and your husband are having a really lovely time. And her friend said to her, she was putting a Band-Aid on, like a, you know, like when you cut yourself, like a mm. sticky plaster. We call them Band-Aids. I think you do in the UK. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So she was putting a Band-Aid over her wedding rings. And her friend said, why are you putting a Band-Aid on your wedding ring? And this girl said, well, if anything happens... I just want people to know that I was married and I stood there looking at this girl and I thought, does she have that same bad feeling that I have too? Wow. I never said anything though. I never Mm. said anything because I didn't know her and I kind of thought it was all hogswash in my head Mm. and she's actually never been found. Wow. Yeah. And I often think about that moment. Wow. If she had that feeling that I had. But all of that I didn't know yet. I just knew that my hair was really, really fuzzy and it was about to rain, which it is actually as well as clouds and my hair's fuzzy even tonight because I've got curly hair and it always goes really fuzzy. And this day it was so fuzzy. We got up to the canyon and it hadn't started raining yet, but I could hear thunder in the distance. When we got out of the minivans, the guide said to us, we're not 100% sure whether or not we should go in today, but don't worry, there are plenty of exit points on the way out. Well, we trusted the guides and they would never have taken us had they known what was going to happen. Mm. We did that first slide and it was beautiful, Matt. It was like the Garden of Eden. The water was crystal clear. It was so exquisite and pristine. The leaves were green and there was this gentle wind and I realised that it had started spitting and I kind of had to put my hand out to see if it was really water that was falling because it was very misty. Mm. We got about halfway down the canyon and by now my group that I was in was in a very narrow part, so it was maybe only a metre wide and we were all in single file and I noticed that the water had gone from that beautiful crystal clear water from moments before to a really murky, muddy brown, like water in a dam. And it was rising incredibly fast from my ankle to my knee within a matter of seconds. Mm. And I said to my friend standing next to me, why is the water rising? And she said, I don't know. Our guide then said to us, we need to move quick. And so I took that next jump and I was the only one to take that jump. And I'm normally quite tentative when I go to go in the water i always have been i love being in the water and, and yeah, i yeah, always same here. swim up yeah. but you know i'm kind of like a penguin i go in and out and in and out, so yeah. penguins do and so like i like to dip my toes in first but on this jump i didn't do that i just crossed my arms and took a leap of faith when i entered into the water hole the sound was like thunder and it was only from the buoyancy of my life vest that I came up for air. There was another guide waiting in the waterhole for me and he reached out his hand to grab me and our hands slipped past each other and I was sucked under the rapids. Wow. It was in that moment that a wall of water came down over four metres high, hitting all of my friends in my group. There were three out of the 12 of us that survived. But I didn't know any of that Whoa. had happened because I was under the rapids. And I knew that I was under rapids. And I knew I'd been washed away. And in my head, I heard my father's voice say to me, if ever you get caught in floodwaters, just relax and stay calm. Water is stronger than us all. I'd been a girl from the country. We had lots of floods. I knew weather patterns. I just didn't, Mm. like I said before, I knew that it was going to rain, but I just didn't know that where that storm was, was actually at the very, very top of the mountain. 
and had broken a natural dam wall that had formed over a period of time. So I surrendered my body completely and utterly. I didn't think about anything. I just focused on getting air when I could and completely let my body go limp. Wow. So you were quite conscious of that thought that your dad had, that that lesson or, yeah, wow. Yeah, very, very. And it was like being in a front loader washing machine. My arms and legs were going everywhere. I was banging into things. I was getting snippets of air when I could. And then eventually a giant log rammed me in the torso and pushed me up into a boulder. And that was the first time my head had actually come above the rapids and I could see what I was in. I looked to my right and I saw my friend's bodies floating over the rapids and I knew that they were gone. I looked to my left and I could see that beautiful bank of beauty with the moss and the leaves, but it was just too far away and I knew that I could never make it. And in that moment, it was like a series of snapshots of my life played out in front of me. Me being bullied as a little girl in the playground, me in high school feeling like I didn't belong. And then me with that boyfriend who treated me so badly. And then I saw me on the mountain with that snow. And I didn't want to die having been that girl. I didn't want to leave this earth Mm. knowing that there was more, Mm. more to me. And I finally accepted all of me. And I thought, if I stay here by this boulder, another log is going to come down. It was moving whole boulders. The force of this water was unbelievable. Wow. There were massive full trees that were flying past. I thought it's going to hit me in the head or I'm going to be crushed and I don't want to die being that girl so I wiggled free somehow and let go and I was washed away again and I kept trying to come up for snippets of air when I could and then there came a point where I thought this is it I have no air left and the next mouthful I take is going to be of water and not air and in that moment I prayed and I prayed to God and I prayed to my aunt that had died that time before And I said, please, dear God, please, Annie, die. Don't let me die. Because if I die, mum won't cope. And I went to take a breath of air. And as I did that, I don't know whether it was an angel or God or a giant wave or whatever it was, but I sporadically burst up out of the water. My whole torso came up out of the water. And I saw what I was about to go over, which was a massive, giant, big waterfall. I'd already gone over two waterfalls and those waterfalls hadn't been as big as this one. It was at least 20 metres wide. There's a photo of it on my website. And I swore in that moment because I thought, (laughs) I didn't know what I thought. I just was like, oh my God. And I went over that waterfall and it was kind of like a feeling of free fall flight. And when I came up for air again, I was in this tiny, tiny little alcove and it was pristine. There were no rapids. And I could see the bank and I tried to move my legs, but they wouldn't work. And so I made my way over in like a breaststroke maneuver and I tried to climb out, but my hands kept slipping through the grass. And then eventually a pair of feet arrived because my head was only just barely bobbing above the water because of my life vest. Otherwise I would have sunk. I was so exhausted. I actually had a giant big log stuck through my vest. So I had to wiggle back into the water and yank out this branch that was through my life vest. And then I called out, go. And this person pulled me up onto the bank. And when I looked up through the mud in my eyes and my eyelashes, 
I saw that it was also one of my friends that had survived. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. That is incredible. And it is. yeah. So what, what, what happened next? I laid there panting, exhausted. And a person arrived from nowhere. I don't know where this person came from. And they said, quick, follow me. I'll take you to safety. And I jumped up and started yelling orders at everybody, telling everyone to get, I became like a soldier in combat. I was like, come on, I'm going to go. Water's going to keep rising. And that's when the first time I really started to feel scared. Hmm. And so we walked up the side of the mountain, but by now it was a mudslide and we were hanging onto trees and ropes, anything that we could find to pull ourselves up back up to the road. When we got to the road, there was like a ledge to stop landslides. So I imagine how bad, you know, it would have been had that ledge not been there. The whole road would have given way. The person that guided us up the side of the mountain sort of helped me over this ledge. It was a very strange contraption of how they built this road. I'd never seen anything like it before. And as he sort of pulled me up over, he looked at me and he said, oh, my God. You're the one I couldn't hold on to. And it was the guide that was in the waterhole that tried to grab my hand. And he burst into tears and I burst into tears. And then we said, let's keep going. And then I became like a soldier again. And I walked back down the road and we came to what was a scene of a rescue attempt. But I knew that they were already too late, mm. having already seen everyone. We were then put into minibuses and there was four of us at that point who got washed up into that little alcove and we were taken to hospital in Interlaken. We were put into a tiny little room underground. There was a little window at the very top of the room and we could see the soil and the roots and the grass and the helicopters kept coming and we kept waiting and we'd look up at this window and we would see the grass waving from the helicopters. But no one ever came because they were all being taken to the morgue. The oh, 21 God. people died. Yeah. 21? So washed away. 21. Oh, I thought you said 12. So No, there were 12 people in my group. So there were four groups. There was a group oh, in front Christ. of me. There was my group. There was a third group and there was a fourth and, group. And this was just purely because there was, it was a complete freak storm that wasn't predicted? The Adventure World was the company that took us canyoning. They had been warned that there would be a flash flood and they did not listen to the warnings. They were charged huh. with negligible manslaughter and were found guilty. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, in all so many, that, so many I questions know. going on in my head right now. Like, I know. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you about my injuries and. Um, I was going to say, I'm guessing, I'm guessing the survivors had many kind of in injuries to, 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 to contend with. One, pers one person had a broken leg that was um, immediately sent off to surgery. Most people were okay. My wow. injuries actually were not diagnosed until some time after I came home. So I also had a broken leg. My tibia was split in half from my ankle to my knee. I had four broken ribs. The particles of ribs were dislodged, moved around to my chest. Mm. My pancreas got damaged, so I'm now type 1 diabetic on an insulin pump. I had a dislocated jaw, which I've since had surgery on. I had soft tissue damage to both of my legs, which have caused a lot of vascular trouble. And of course I had all of the mental health issues, post-traumatic stress disorder and survivor's guilt for a very, very long time. 
Mm. And the fact that I had those injuries and they weren't picked up for such a long time was significant as well. Mm. Yeah. So the Swiss canyoning, sorry. No, no, go for it. Uh, The Swiss canyoning disaster was the largest number of Australian deaths on foreign soil outside of war times. And our governor general, who is Sir William Dean, that was the governor general at the time, he came to Switzerland, he smuggled in wattle, which is our national flower. Got some here. (laughs) That's our, that's wattle. This is lovely yellow flower. He (laughs) smuggled that in. How naughty. And and so there were 14 sprigs of wattle were thrown into the Saxon Park Gorge to commemorate those Australians that died. There's a memorial site right next to the canyon. This is amazing. It is maintained every month by volunteers for the last 21 years. They go up there, they sweep it, they take care of it, they make sure that there's no mould or no nothing, you know, it's not graffitied or anything like that. There's flags there of all the countries that, from the people that um, perished that day. So there were people from England, from Switzerland, from New Zealand, Australia and South Africa. Last year was the 20th anniversary of the Swiss canyoning disaster and there was an international memorial event held at the memorial site in um, at the Saxon Park Gorge which is just near Vinderswil which is near Interlaken Mm. and uh, there were dignitaries from all over the world that came including the former president of Switzerland there was letters from Sir William Dean he's an elderly gentleman now and couldn't travel at the time the Australian consulate were there there was um, people from everywhere family members, survivors. Have you been back? And we went back. It was the uh-huh. first time. Oh, it was the first time. Yeah. Wow. It was a very, very big, <laughs> a very big deal. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that. I knew that there was going to be something that would really trigger a memory. And I had, I'd launched my book, um, Brave Enough Now, which is my story uh, yeah. of the, in more detail, obviously. And so I had a lot of stuff going on around the book. I'd done a lot of TV interviews and there was a lot of media around because the Swiss canyoning disaster was, at the time, it was like as big as 9-11. It was as big as the Bali bombings or the Thai boys in the cave. There were media everywhere. There was over 200 journalists that were surrounding our chalet when all of this happened. Mm. When I got home, I was taken into the airport by the Secret Service and uh, we had TV crews and helicopters hovering over our farm. We lived out in the middle of nowhere. So it was it was incredibly intense media, mm. huge, big coverage because of the significance of it. And it actually changed the relationship between Switzerland and Australia, which is amazing, amazing. So going back brought up a lot of questions, I suppose. I always wondered how far I went down the canyon because I never really knew how long that was. And I, I did feel slightly anxious, but I knew that there was always going to be a time when I needed to go back and I knew that the mm. time was then. And I got on the yeah, closure, and, I guess. Yeah. And I feel incredibly privileged to have had that experience because I think a lot of people go through a massive trauma, but they don't get to have this last bit of healing that I got to have. Mm. I was on the plane and my son said to me, mommy, mommy, look out the window, look at the mountains. They're so amazing. and I looked out the window at the mountains and I had an incredibly enormous panic attack and just couldn't move or stuck on the spot couldn't stop crying I became hysterical and I didn't realize that I was going to have that sort of reaction it really Mm. took me by surprise 
and the smell of Switzerland when I got there and it was little things and it was the leaf litter that actually brought back most of the memories. I was covered in, covered in debris. I was blowing out debris out of my nose for months and I've still got bits of Switzerland stuck in the cut that they never stitched up. Wow. And the, the, the hospital didn't know what to do at the time. They were just inundated and yeah, yeah. care wasn't, I don't think at what level it would be now. Mm. And remember it's 21 years ago too. So, you know, it was a while, yeah. it was a while ago and they didn't probably have the same procedures and things that they would have in place in today's world. And so when I saw this leaf litter last year and I actually went back into the Canyon, I was so brave. And I thought, well, if I'm talking about being brave, I've, <laughs> I've got to walk the walk, you know, I've got to walk the talk. Sure, yeah. And so I went into the canyon with my best friend who I met on the bus. She was a lifesaver in my recovery. And we always said we would go back together. She actually lost her cousin in the tragedy. God. And I wanted to touch the water. I felt like I needed to finally make peace with it in some way. And I saw that water rushing and I thought, oh, dear Lord, like I can't believe I'm actually here. And that was my biggest fear. You know, some people are really scared of spiders or I don't know, they've got this fear. I, my biggest fear of anything ever was the water. Did, did you Absolutely have an issue with terrifying. water like after that for a long time or... But no, just just water, just water in general. It, just no, the water it was just there. That water. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. The water yeah. Well, that makes that sense. Stream. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So and you know I'm fine to go for a swim in a river. I am. I live yeah. at the beach. I swim all the time. But I. It was that water and the sound yeah. of it. Oh, so so forceful. And I, we kind of climbed our way across this little bridge that was new. There was a lot of things that had changed. Obviously, it's you know, it doesn't look the same anymore because they've had more floods and there's more boulders that have moved. And, you know, that's just mm. the way that nature goes. And I'm walking across this bridge yelling out at the top of my lungs, I am safe. I am safe. I am safe. I am safe. So that was one of the tools I learned in my PTSD right. recovery. Right. And then we climbed down this ladder and we sat on this little boulder and it was really, really wet. And to try and get down to actually to touch the water was a very long way down and very, very difficult. And I didn't actually know if we'd be able to get out, if we'd got down there. And so I said to Cassandra, my friend, I'm sitting here and it's wet. I think I'm touching the water. This is the same water. It's just not running over me. Is that okay? She said, <laughs> you know what? I think it's okay. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here for a minute. And it was very, it was very peaceful and it was healing. And it was this beautiful moment of, again, of acceptance of what had happened. And I felt like all of their souls had gone to this beautiful place and that it was okay. Everything was okay. And everything was going to be okay. And one of the tools I used a lot during my recovery particularly with the survivor's guilt, that was very, very difficult. PTSD is very difficult, but I think I did a lot more work initially with the PTSD than the survivor's guilt. And that's taken me many, many, many years to really work through because you feel very guilty for being alive mm. when all of those people died. Mm. So I felt like I had to live this big life, this amazing life. I had to do everything <clears throat> enormous and really big and big Everything had to be big, had to, you know, do my best at everything. It just puts so much pressure on you constantly. 
and it, and it was a survivor's guilt that kind of like was part of the driver for that yeah like i had to make mm. up for the fact that they died mm. and i'd stayed alive so therefore i have to have an amazing wedding because they didn't get to get married or sure. if they were married you know like for those who they never got yeah. to do that and so i had to you know be the best mother i could be because they never got to be a mother mm. i had to you know be the best at you know, putting every ounce of effort I had into every single thing in every aspect of my life, like in, not in an, it probably was unhealthy. I didn't see it as an unhealthy way, but I definitely would, was my worst enemy at putting pressure on myself and ex, having these expectations of what I needed to fulfill in my life. How do you feel about that, Tiffany, now, that, that idea? What, at what point, because we all need a positive motivational driver right in our lives something that's gonna you know push us to to be better but then when it becomes at the expense of your own mental health and well-being is that is that like little sweet spot isn't there like, there what, definitely is what, without that you know i i'm a cancer survivor and so yeah. one of my drivers is is the fact that i try and make the most of every day and and it, and it sort of pushes me on. Um, but I would equally kind of think, well, you know, I do sometimes wonder, well, where would I be if had the cancer not have happened? Would I be as ambitious as I am? Would mm. I be, you know, and you kind of, yeah, there's this, this whole yin and yang thing between do we need the darkness to get to the light or can we just, how can we, do, do you see what I'm saying? I totally agree with you. And I think that there is definitely that sweet spot. And one of the things that I used was to be grateful and that acceptance and acceptance that the same as when I was on that mountain, acceptance that it's okay to be me. It's okay to make mistakes. We're all human. It's okay to have the joy and the wonder and the bliss and the blessings and the abundance. And I also learned that, you know, I had this great sense of purpose or I was have a great sense of purpose now. And I have had that great sense of purpose since I started writing my book. I still had a sense of purpose before then, but it wasn't nearly as strong. I, I believed that I'd been saved for a reason. I just didn't know what that reason was. So I was searching for what that was. And when I first came back, I started writing my book and I was like, this is too hard. This is too raw. I'm not doing this and I just you know shut it down and then about four years ago I think it was now I was going through another transformative period in my life and it became abundantly clear to me that I had to write my book and it was like a calling mm. and it was incredibly cathartic and I'm sure you'll find the same thing when you write your book because I finally realized that I didn't need to live this big life. I didn't need to live this huge, big pressure life. What I actually needed to do was live my life for me. Because when I did that, when I was my authentic self, which comes back to my message, mm. is that I can then help others. I can serve others. I can fill the world with magic and wonder from taking care of me and accepting all of me. Mm. And so that's where my whole... Has that been the theme then for many years is the, the authenticity that 
that seems to be the, one, of the, one of the become, through lines. Yeah, it's definitely become more apparent because you can't, I believe in our life, you can't live an amazing, wonderful, normal, everyday, brilliant life unless you're authentic. Because if you're living a lie within yourself, mm. what do you have? Yeah. What do you have? So, so the, uh, a couple of things. So, well, first, I hadn't, I'm surprised I haven't, but I haven't heard the, the term survivor's guilt before. I suppose it's because I haven't met so many, peop many people with the story that, <laughs> that have, um, you know, quite a, ra a rarity, right? Thankfully. Yeah, there's not so many people you hear that have got washed away in a flash flood. And I just would like to say, I actually learned this year, quite recently in the last few months, that I went over the three waterfalls, which I um, talked about, but I also went over a kilometre. And I've since had contact with a person who knew the canyon incredibly well and who had been a guide, not for Adventure World, but for another company. And he said, my chance of survival would have been 0.0001%. Wow. how far I went. Yeah. Did you find out roughly how far it was? I mean. Yeah, he said it was, we said it was over a kilometre. Wow. Yeah, it's a long way to be washed away underwater. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and so you, interestingly, you said that the survivor's guilt was in some ways harder to deal with than the PTSD. Mm. What, what, why, why, why was that? Probably because I, like I said, I think because I didn't get the treatment that I needed at the time. I got a lot of treatment with uh, a huge hospital in Sydney that specialises in post-traumatic stress disorder. And it had very clear signs. There were physical signs that I was suffering from that. I was having terrible nightmares and flashbacks and I couldn't focus. I couldn't function. I was not in a good way. When I got on the plane in london to come back home i thought that it would have been easier to die than to go through what i was going through and right. how could i have been left and how could i possibly think that when i've been given this gift of life so i think that because i'd had intense therapy for months and months on end on the ptsd and some of some of that survivor's guilt goes into that as well but not to the same level and then I did a lot of other healing work and yeah, I was going to say at what point did you start? I'm guessing, uh, I'm just guessing, but you know, I imagine once you came out of this, there was a point where you started a journey of sort of personal development, personal growth, and understanding what had happened, and you know, all all of that. Or, or were you quite into kind of were you quite into sort of personal development before this? Or such a good question, Matt. I have to think about that for a second. Look, I definitely was trying to find who I was before the accident. That is abundantly clear. And I knew that the life that I was living was anything but my truth. And when I came home, I was in such a terrible way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. It took probably about 12 months for me to start to yeah. get back on track. And it wasn't long after that that I met my now husband an incredible saviour and a rock, as has my best friend, Cassandra. And I did all that therapy. I did lots of, lots of therapy. And I did lots of pain. 
that was a really wonderful tool that I used to um, help. And I journaled and I journaled all my life and I'd stopped when things had got messy, but I'd started again. And that was one of the tools that the Westmead hospital at the PTSD clinic had Mm. suggested that I do. And a lot of that writing led up to the book as well. And so I, um, I definitely was, I definitely knew that there was a part of me that needed to keep growing and keep transforming and keep evolving because Mm. of that moment on the mountain, that moment on the mountain was the turning point. Had that moment on the mountain not happened, would I have had the same response in the Canyon? I don't know. Mm. I believe that everything in life happens for a reason. And I believe that so strongly. Sometimes we just don't know what that reason is a bit like when we try to find our purpose, we know that there's a reason for us to be on this planet, but what is it and how do I find it? So after the accident, I very much was looking for that purpose because I just believed that I'd had to be left here for some reason. What reason could it possibly be? I have no idea, but I have to do it. That's, that's a, you know, that's an interesting point, right? Because I think you can only find that purpose or, or, or you know if you're looking <laughs> sounds obvious but yeah. you know if you're not so, looking and, and many you know i think i think you know that's what what we try and encourage people to do in, in lpt is is you know obviously initially many people just want to they you know they i i call them labels but they'll, they'll say i want to lose a little bit of weight i want to lose a few pounds i want to get a bit fitter i want to have more confidence and, and usually, you know, it takes a good amount of coaching to, to dig down to what's the purpose, what we call it a purposeful transformation. You know, what, what is the real reason? Um, yeah. And, you know, if we get to that level, then sometimes we get tears, sometimes we, we, we get, you know, emotion. But, um, but, you know, I think, and, but it takes courage. Uh, like you said, yeah. it takes being, being a little bit brave and, how I put it in one of my chapters is wanting what you want, having the courage and all the audacity to, to actually want what you want. And, and so, so what did you do to start to, you know, what, what, what key things have impacted you in finding out what your sort of purpose is? Listening to my intuition without a doubt, like that niggling feeling that I had, uh, it still comes. Sometimes I don't like it when it does because it means something bad's about to happen, (laughs) but really listening to my own inner self. And if something doesn't feel good, don't do it. Do what makes you feel good. Mm. I think you also start to have that understanding of how fragile life can be. And you would probably feel that too. And so it's not only about finding your purpose, but it's about making the most of every day and living with a gratitude mindset and, knowing how grateful you are like one of the you know people say what do you get up in the morning for i get up to see the sun i love the sun the sun gives us life the sun's energizing the sun's amazing it's what makes our planet go around and people think when i say that that's so weird why would you get up for the sun but without the sun what do we have so i i feel so joyous we don't get as much sun as you (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> no, it's a bit more grey and dreary. It's still like it's still about. I think that actually is not just about the sun, but I get about, I get exactly I, what you're you know, saying. You know, I got to wake up today, and some people didn't get to wake up today. Yeah. So how lucky am I? Like this is amazing, and I don't feel that level of guilt anymore with having that gratitude and having that joy and having that abundance in my life. So that's definitely a massive turning point. And I've continued a journal, which I think is a wonderful tool. I've got my new journal coming out, which is called Discovering Your Brave. It's a guided wow. journal to unlocking your best and bravest self. And it's a lot of the tools that I've used to help me in my recovery and finding what it is that I want in my life and how I can feel happy and how I can feel fulfilled and how I can make the choices in my life to move forward in a really positive direction. And I think as well, part of the, part of the story too, is that in the middle of that Canyon, when I was pushed up against that boulder, I had a choice and I chose life and I chose a life of the me that I wanted to be. And that's exactly what you're talking about, knowing what you want and being courageous enough to go out and get it. And I was pretty courageous at that time when I reflect back on that. At the time, I didn't think it was. It was, wasn't a matter of being brave or not being brave. But now when I look back at that, I definitely made a choice to live a life that I would love and a life of the authentic me. Mm. And I think we all can make choices. We can choose to stay in the job that we don't like or we can choose to find something else that fulfills us. We can choose to be in the toxic relationship or we can choose to leave it and move out of it. And it might be hard. And I'm not saying that any of these things are easy, not one little bit. But out of the darkness, exactly what you said earlier, out of the darkness, there comes light. And with that light is a joy and a magic. I always say that when you truly believe in yourself, that magic comes your way and then it spreads like wildfire for others to join in. And that's mm -hmm. what happens when you transform. Yeah. It's so interesting. I kind of think about myself and think about all of the, the people that we've, we've, I've seen transformations, lifestyle transformations with over the, the last 15 years. And, um, you know, c courage is definitely one of those ingredients that is, you know, it, but it's so hard if, you know, if anyone's listened to this, you know, you can have full empathy because it's, it is so hard when you're in that situation that you feel completely stuck. You feel like there's no way out. And obviously, you know, unfortunately many people get to that point where they do feel that way and, and, you know, ch choose, cho choose that, that it's not worth even trying yeah. or it's just too much. And, um, what, what do you say to those people? For those people, I always say that there is someone that's willing to listen to you and to help you and to help guide you out of that stuck feeling. There's always someone willing to listen. There's helplines, there's online tools. There is always someone to listen. And when you're feeling stuck or you feel like you need help, it takes incredible courage to ask for it, but that you can actually do it. And that can be the starting point to your discovery of moving forward, of feeling unstuck. I love journaling, obviously. I love journaling. I've talked about it a fair bit. Do you journal every day, Tiffany? Um, probably at the moment. I've been journaling every second day in the last month or so, but normally I would journal every day. And one of the tools I love to use, in fact, I had someone talk about it on my podcast recently, is this seven layers of why. So you might journal. So it's free form journaling. It's just a notebook. It could be on your phone. It could, I like handwriting it. I feel like yeah. it gets something out of my head, out, out 
out. <laughs> I need yeah. to get it out. And so you start writing, you know, I'm, I'm unhappy. Let's say someone doesn't like the job. I'm unhappy in my job. Why? I don't like the work that it is. Why? Well, the work is boring. I don't feel fulfilled. Why don't you feel fulfilled? Because there's nothing creative in that job. Why? Because I love creativity. So all of a sudden you've unlocked something within yourself of mm. what is your value and then that leads to your purpose as well mm. and then what you love and so once you start to unlock those layers you're really able to start to become more unstuck and it takes time this sort of this work doesn't happen overnight it does take a long time and that's a that's courage really tool in itself isn't it because yeah you know when you're when you're answering the question why you're having to tell the truth and the, the, obviously, the more layers you go through or go down, the, the, the more, the harder, the, the harsher and harder the truths are. Yeah, definitely. And some people don't like that. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it can be really confronting, like when you read it back and you go, <gasps> mm. do, I, do I really think that? But you know in your heart and when you listen to your intuition, you'll know. You so I want to talk about that, know. the intuition part, because you've obviously talked about that a lot, you know, when you were in that, you know, life-threatening situation, well, before that, and you had the intuition that things were bad, you know, is, is this, was that the start of, of listening to, not listening to intuition, but having the self-awareness to, to think about intuition as a, as a concept, as a thing? How, how have you developed your intuition over the years? Is it, is it something like self-awareness that you can just work on and improve on? Have yes, you, I think so. Definitely. You? Yeah, definitely. I think there are a lot of people out there who have a, a big spiritual side to intuition and I do totally embrace that. And I've seen other people who don't feel that way, but they too have intuition. So I'm not talking about intuition in terms of psychic mediums. Yeah, I'm talking yeah, about that gut intuition. feeling. Yeah, I have a feeling that this is not good for me. Yeah. I have a feeling that this is, this lights me up. I mean, you know, within yourself when something makes you laugh or when you feel really excited about something or you get an idea, you get a burst of inspiration of, I'm going to do a podcast. That's going to be amazing. And, <laughs> you know, you just feel great and excited about it. You get excited about it. And mm. that is your intuition telling you that is the universe, God, your inner being, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it or whether it's just your own knowing, mm. it is your path to your purpose in your life. I truly wholeheartedly believe that. Do you and regularly find yourself uh, changing your decisions on things when yes, you get a bad feeling? Crazy. <laughs> I really. <laughs> <laughs> this restaurant's going to be bad. <laughs> we won't go there tonight. I'll tell you a very funny story. When we first started dating, he would take me to a restaurant and we'd sit down and i go, I don't like it in here. And he'd be like, what's wrong with it? And I'd be like, I've got a bad feeling about this. And he'd be like, <laughs> I'd be like, come on. And we would have already sat down and got menus and everything. I'd be like, no, come on, we're leaving. And he'd be like, oh, like dying. So embarrassed. And then we'd go to the next restaurant. And I'd be like, yes, I'm very happy. here. This is very good. So what he started doing... <laughs> He started taking me to the restaurant next door to the restaurant he wanted to go to. Mm. 
so that we'd actually get to stay at the restaurant <laughs> that he wanted to go to. Brilliant. But yes, I'm I am a nightmare. And so I say to him often, Oh, I don't I don't have a good feeling about this. But he's learnt and he's seen it and he's witnessed it that when I have a bad feeling, something bad happens, generally speaking. Mm. It's like a knowing. I'll give you another example. A few years ago, my mother got breast cancer and she's fine. She's okay now. And the day before she told, rang to tell me, she knew the day before, but she didn't ring me on the day she found out. And I had this gut-wrenching feeling that something bad was going to happen, almost debilitating. I actually don't think that I'd ever had an experience like that, except for on the day of the canyoning disaster where I felt so bad that something mm. bad was going to happen. Like this knowing of, it's like a storm brewing. You can't quite describe what it is, but it's I, it sits in my gut. You know how they talk about your gut feeling or mm. mother's intuition or mother's sixth sense. Something's not right. And I just knew that something wasn't right. And then the next, and almost to the point where I felt like I was going to collapse. I didn't collapse at all, but I just felt not good. And I couldn't put my finger on what that feeling was. I had had a fine day. Nothing bad had happened. You know, there was nothing on social media or the news or anything like that that would have indicated that there was something. And then the next day she rang and she told me that she had breast cancer. And instantly then the feeling went away because I knew what that was. So it's this sense of knowing. And I get the same thing with an excited feeling or something good's about to come. And I just listen to that constantly guiding me to do what I need to do in my life. And as much as it does drive my husband crazy, it generally hasn't steered me wrong, touch wood. Um, and the more you tune into it, the more you listen to it, the stronger it becomes. How and do you describe it? Like what, when, it, when, you, when it comes on, are you, what are you thinking about? Is it, does it just hit you or do you have to go into yourself and just kind of feel, you know, feel it? Both. So I meditate every day. That's one thing I always do without without a, skipping a beat. I always meditate every single day. And when you're in that um, meditative state, it's almost similar to when I was in the canyon. It's that sense of just surrendering and letting go. And yeah. I've meditated since I was 18. So wow. Um, yeah. So that's been something that I've I've done for a long time. And also a lot of people who do yoga and stuff like that is very um, you know into all of that sort of stuff. So there's definitely a component when I'm in that zone of um, feeling or a sense of knowing or some form of guidance. Do you think that it. improves your level of intuition, the fact that you I meditate really every day? I really mm. do believe that. I think that that quiet time yeah. to just breathe and I focus on something. So whether it's music or I focus on, you know, the lights buzzing or um, I might do a guided meditation but I don't just, because your mind wanders and we're all scattered and I'm not in that sort of state of mind all the day. I'm only yeah. in it for 15 minutes of the day, but it definitely calms you down, calms your nervous system. There's so much science around oh, yeah. stress with meditation. Yeah. And so I think that once you get into that state of quiet, you are able to feel things more. So not only when there's that meditation sense of knowing, but there's also other times when 
a sense of knowing will come over you and you don't know that it's coming. So for example, you might be looking left and you're holding onto your child's hand and you don't see them, but they're about to step onto the road and get run over and you instantly grab them before anything's happened. That's your intuition. That's yeah. your knowing. That's your understanding. Yeah. It's just your awareness and it's an awareness of self and awareness. I think of your, you know, your, your surroundings, but that's also comes, I think to another great tool to help with that is to be in the present moment. Mm. And that comes as well from that idea of, um, being grateful and you know and having those mental tools and you know do you feel like that has that, has that helped you in during the, the stressful because obviously in melbourne right now you're, you're back in a lockdown you know <laughs> life's been pretty stressful for everyone around the world for the last five six months the people that i've been talking to who practice you know these types of um like mindset strategies if you want to call them or spiritual you know um have found that it, it seems that they, they've found coping mechanisms um or, or using them as coping mechanisms are really helpful and how have you, have you been maximizing yeah. them for this through super this helpful super helpful so doing something that you're grateful for i'll give you a few tips so because i love doing this i love sharing tips because i think it helps everybody and this isn't woohoo or spiritual or whatever this is just something that everyday mm. people can use and i love this one so in the morning when i wake up before i open my eyes before I've recognized that it's the day, I think of one thing of intention. What is my intention for the day? So this morning when I woke up, my intention for the day was I want to feel well. As, as we talked before, I'd not, not been feeling 100%. Yeah. And I want to feel well today. So that's my intention and my focus. Then, for the, then before I, I still haven't opened my eyes, I think of five things I'm grateful for. So I could be grateful for the amazing sleep I just had. I could be grateful for the bed I'm in. I could be grateful that I'm warm. Or I could be grateful that um, my children are home and safe. And a lot of my gratitude has been, I'm so grateful for my home and my family during COVID. I also find gratitude throughout the day. So there's, so there's your intention for the day. Are you, are you, are you, for. yeah, I like that. I like that. And, and are you like thinking it or are you like saying it in your head i'm saying it to myself in my head and sometimes yeah. i'll get up and i think oh what did i just what, what was my intention i don't remember what i okay. <laughs> but then there's other days when i'm incredibly clear and i'm incredibly focused and i will constantly go back to that in my mind throughout the yeah. day this was my intention for the day and that's also part of your living your purpose and living in the present and finding that gratitude so it's embodying the mindset tools throughout the day and that takes a long time to be able to practice that but when you do get into the space of that times like COVID you've got those tools in your toolkit to help you move through each day in mm. a more positive way so I have found COVID an amazing time to do a lot of self-discovery work. There's been a lot of journaling. I've done more writing. I have created more things. I've let my creativity run wild. My podcast is doing really well. So like I've taken the opportunity to really make the most of this situation. And I think when you come to that time of life or death, you do try and do that. And I've done it in a positive way, not that pressuring way. Of yeah. <gasps> You know, I've got to have this big life. It's not been like that at all. It's been more in flow. It's an inspired, inspired Yeah, life. like an inspired, yeah, because yeah, I'm listening to my intuition and I'm just going with the flow and things are falling into place. And 
and doing things in a really safe way. That's really important to say that too. And, and also acknowledging when you don't feel great, everyone has days when they don't feel great. Yeah. To be kind to yourself. Like just give yourself a break. I think we don't do that enough. It's like I say, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to not feel great sometimes because sometimes we just don't feel great. Why, why do we beat ourselves up so much, Tiffany? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm getting better at it. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely our worst, our worst uh, critics, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, there's a whole, I've read a little bit about this, there's a whole part to our brains that are attracted more to the negative things in our life. Yeah. Another tool I use is the switch words. So sometimes if there's something that I'm saying that's negative, I'll have a switch word for that and I'll turn it into a positive. And I've taught my children to do that. And my daughter is amazing at doing that. Wow. Amazing at doing that. So yeah. that's another really great tool that you yeah. can use. Some There's a great things. book on that actually called, uh, I think it's called Flip It by Michael Heppel. He's a motivational oh, okay. speaker and he, um, it's literally, it's literally, the whole book is on, on flipping, flipping any negativity, flipping any problems, flip, flipping the struggles. And how do you switch that into, into positive momentum? Yeah. And, and so I'm guessing on a lot of this, these strategies and, and you know, what, what you talk about in, in people getting their own courage and being brave to embrace their own ideal journey. These are all in your, packed in your book or. Uh, so my, well, the, my memoir, Brave Enough Now, which you see behind me, uh, yeah, it's in German nice. and in English. Um, it, it's the story. It's my yeah. story. Yeah. Um, and it's written as, as a storybook. It's available on ebook, paperback or audiobook, which I narrated. Which wow, fantastic. Yeah. So that's available wherever you um, get your books from online. So, you know, Amazon, Kobo, yeah, yeah. Um, Google Play, all of those things. And uh, the journal is a whole bunch of different tools um, that, so it's a paperback book, that book, because obviously you need to do the work. Sure. So this, sure. It's more like so a, a practical thing to do to right. improve yourself. Yeah. So you learn the techniques and then you put them into practice and you create the habit. So there's 60 days of habit um, building. And then the, the front of the book is all about how you actually learn the techniques and there's um, activities and and working things and things through their journaling tools and guided ways of doing things. And there's a whole bunch of bonuses in there, like meditations and visualizations as affirmation cards and Fantastic. a whole bunch of extra tools that I've used um, to really, to help me recover from something that was really quite horrific. What uh, I'm very aware of your time. I'm very curious. What point did you decide to share your story how long after how long after the healing you're bringing out all the great questions thank <laughs> you <laughs> part of the survivor's guilt as well was inability to really share what happened to me because there were a lot of people on that canyoning experience and there were a lot of people who lost loved ones and I always felt so terrible about what had happened to them and you know, some some bodies were unidentifiable they had to be identified through dental records wow um it was it wasn't nice yeah. and 
thing. I wanted to always be really respectful and honour my friends who perished. In fact, my book's dedicated to my friends that died. And I knew, like I said, when I came home that I needed to share my story, but like I said, it was just too raw. And then a few years ago when I decided that I was going to write my book, I actually went and spoke to some families that I've stayed in contact with. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. Mm. And they said, you need to tell your story. You need to tell your story. And so that's what I did. So the story is very focused on me. It very rarely talks about anybody else, but it talks about what happened to me and why I made the choices that I made. And so I, I felt a sense of freedom when I find Well, that takes, that takes a lot of courage in itself, right? Because you come from a place of pre having, before having this awful experience to having very low self-worth, very low self-confidence to, to actually having the courage to talk about yourself. Uh, yes when you write your book too and and you first have people read it it's so terrifying (laughs) (laughs) i keep putting it off (laughs) i haven't got the courage yet (laughs) (laughs) you'll get there you'll get there it takes time be gentle with yourself and i i wouldn't let my parents read the book and i you know i actually never told them what had happened up until i read the book because i just didn't have the words, mm. I don't think, to really be able to express just how horrific it really was. I mm. didn't want to upset them more. That constant people pleasing. Did you have them in mind out. when you were writing it? Yes, I did. And I had um, there was a, there's a moment in the book when I'm in the hospital and I have to call my dad. And the, the canyoning part of the book is actually only a very short bit at the very end because it's all about the lead up and and about my journey and. Sure. and um, <clears throat> All of that makes for what happened in the canyon even more profound and mm. confronting and, and moving. And I ring, I had to ring my dad and I'm sitting in front of my fireplace and I'm typing away and I'm remembering, I'm living this experience of ringing home and being told by the nurses that we've got three minutes to make a phone call and I ring home and my dad answers the phone and he says, it's two o'clock in the morning in Australia and he says, Hello, Possum, what's happened? And the nurses had said to us, um, it's going to be all over the news. You need to call your families. They're going to be worried that you've died. You need to let them know that you're alive. Mm. And I said to my dad, you know, what do you mean? You, <laughs> do you already know? Is it already on TV? And he said, no. He said, Possum, it's two o'clock in the morning. He still calls me Possum. <laughs> it's two o'clock in the morning. Something must have happened for you to be calling. And I said to my dad, they're all dead. I'm alive. And as I was writing these words, the tears just poured mm. out of me. God, yeah. And I, can imagine. And I just I said to him, I'm in hospital in Switzerland. And then I had to go. <clears throat> and so all my parents knew was that their daughter was alive. There'd been some sort of accident. It was going to be on the news in the morning. And she's in hospital somewhere in Switzerland. As a parent now, <laughs> I was beside myself with yeah. the thought of what I did to yeah. them. And so there was lots of moments like that that I thought that I'd been okay with. And then actually mm. when you do start putting things onto paper, which is why journaling is such an amazing tool, mm. you really start to unlock and uncover and unravel all of these things that are within us. We're like onions. Those layers just keep coming away and away and away. Yeah. Yeah. 
well i think that's that's an amazing way to end i think i think it's definitely i love journaling um it's something that i do sporadically when i feel like i need to i, I feel like i do have a good intuition to when I, I like i need to get this all of this stuff in my head on paper just yeah. to kind of make some sense of it and so i would recommend everyone check out your your is it actually out now is it or is it about to it's be out released? about three weeks about oh three wow weeks. Guys, um, you, we'll put the links in in the notes, and um, you need to check that out. But thank you, thanks so much, Tiffany, for sharing your unbelievable story. Um, you know, um, we'll definitely stay connected, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun. And I love this is why I love you know it's an amazing world we live in now. We can we can share these amazing stories, um, you know, from far apart, and uh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's super awesome. amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's been so exciting. A really lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, that was great. <laughs>